and good mates to this day. There wasn't uh, too many fisticuffs growing up. Uh, in fact, in all honesty, I can testify that I don't believe I ever saw any of our brothers resort to physical violence in resolving our differences. A few verbal altercations, it's fair to say, but I don't believe we ever resorted to physical violence to resolve our issues in terms of fisticuffs. Now, the text that we have just been just read to us references brothers eight times. And so the writer is wanting us to focus on the brother relationship in particular between Cain and Abel. For those of you who were here with us last Sunday, you will have heard and you heard of the tragic consequences of how sin entered into creation and how a curse fell over creation. And this morning's chapter is the outworking of sin creeping into God's good creation. So let's pause for prayer and then we'll unpack what we've had read to us. God of all creation, we thank you for the flawless character of your word. And as we sit under it now, we would ask that through your Holy Spirit, you would humble our proud hearts as we've already prayed this morning, that you would strengthen our timid hearts and that you would heal our broken hearts, that we might see Jesus in his name and for his glory we pray. Amen. Well, if you haven't already turned there, please turn with me to Genesis 4, and I'm reading from verse 1. Adam made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits to the, of the soil as an offering to the Lord's. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions, from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. Chapter 4 is troubling in many ways. Chapter 4 in Genesis, we see a number of the outworking of the curse. We see anger, we see violence, we see envy, we see vengeance all on display as the rebellion of Adam and Eve starts to permeate God's good creation. But chapter 4, like chapter 3, is not without hope. It begins and it ends with a reference to faith. As we heard read to us, Eve, in giving birth to her son Cain, declares that it was with the Lord's help that she brings forth a man. It's a declaration of faith. With the Lord's help, I've brought forth this man. And chapter concludes in verse 26 with this statement, at that time people began to call on the name of the Lord. So there's hope and there's faith in the midst of the darkness of this chapter. The opening verses in chapter 4 in Genesis at first reading, however, appear to be a real challenge to our concept of fairness. God receives Abel and he rejects Cain. And it's a real challenge to our 21st century hearing. What's going on in this offering that is bought? 
Cain, the firstborn, Adam and Eve, brings an offering to the Lord. His brother Abel also brings an offering. They come to God and worship, but the hearts of the two brothers are obviously different. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor, the text says, and this made Cain mad. This made Cain mad, which at first glance we can understand. Is this a case of favorites? I mentioned how I grew up with five brothers, and in my household it was very clear there were favorites. There were some who were accepted and celebrated, and there were some who were disappointments. And I have three brothers who still live with the scar of knowing that they never quite lived up to their father's expectations. A word to fathers this morning on Mother's Day. If you want to bring dysfunction and disharmony into your family, then play the favorites game. Is that what's going on here? Well, no. We can clearly say this is not what is going on in this text. And the reason I say that is because we know from Scripture that God does not show favorites. In Acts chapter 10, 34, Peter proclaims the following, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. The one who fears him and does what is right. And that's a bit of a clue to interpreting what's going on here in Genesis 4. If God chooses to bless some and not others, as the sovereign creator of the universe, that is his prerogative and right to do so. Paul says exactly that in Romans 9. In dealing with Moses and Pharaoh, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. The clay has no right to question the potter. And let me say quite clearly that fairness is not the yardstick for interpreting Genesis 4. Certainly our concept of fairness is not the yardstick. The yardstick we must apply to understanding this text, lest we fall into the very trap that Eve fell into in Genesis 3, of being the judge and making herself the judge, the yardstick we must apply is the character and the nature of God's. God's Word reminds us the Lord is gracious, He's compassionate, He's slow to anger. He is rich in love. That's our yardstick that we apply to Genesis 4. So let's look closer at what Cain brought to God. Look again at verse 3 through to 5. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions, some from some of the firstborn of his flock, the Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain on his offering, he did not look with favor. Cain brings some fruit. Abel brings the first fruit. The implication is that Cain brought what was available to him. He showed up to worship when it suited him. He brought what was on hand, and he brought some fruit as his offering. Abel brings the first fruit. Abel brings the first fruit from his flock, the choicest cut from his firstborn. He brings, in other words, the very best. 
He comes before God in worship, bringing his very best. And Abel finds favor, and Cain does not. And this makes Cain both mad and depressed. Now, we won't try to apply 21st century psychology to God's word, but we can discern from the next two verses that Cain's heart is not right, and anger and depression are the clue. Look at verse 6 and 7. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. If you do what is right, you will be accepted, the word says. Not the offering, but you will be accepted, God says to Cain. If you do what is right, you will be, offer- you will be accepted. It's the same language that Peter used in Acts 10. God doesn't have favorites, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. Now, we can be sure from this text that both Cain's offering and his heart behind the offering had somehow been compromised, somehow been tainted from the inherited sin that he was born with. And as a result, the text says, sin is crouching at your door and its desire is to have you. Now, the imagery is incredibly powerful. The imagery is incredibly powerful here. Sin is crouching at your door, and its desire is to have you. It's the very phrase that is reworked from Genesis chapter 3, 16, when the relationship between Eve and Adam had broken down, and God pronounced his judgment on Eve and on that broken relationship, and he said, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. And here in chapter 4, there's a reworking of that verse, which raises some significant questions about the nature of sin. Its desire is to have you, but it must not control you. You must control it. The imagery that God uses here is of a wild animal, It's crouching, it's ready to pounce on Cain. And the language of desire that he uses there is the language of lust that seduces and ensnares. Sin is close, it's waiting for you to step outside the door or worse, for you to open the door and to welcome it in and to make some kind of perverted compromise with sin. But you must rule over it. It must not control you, the text says. You must rule over it. So we might ask, what was Cain's sin? What was going wrong? Why was he not accepted? Well, the first sin is unknown to us, but it relates to his heart and the hard attitude that he brings, his unrighteous motives in worship, and then becomes the visible sins. They become very clear as the chapter unfolds. The first visible sin is the level of anger, presumably fueled by his envy for his brother. Anger in itself, we know, is not a sin, but there's a point where anger goes beyond controlled righteous anger, and it does control you, and it steps into that place of sin. This was on ev- in evidence in Cain's walk. 
For Cain, the rage resulted in him in murdering his own brother. He doesn't step out the door. He opens the door to sin and welcomes it into his heart with a lustful embrace. Look at verse 8 and 9. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. And then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? When he's confronted by God, God asks the same question that was asked of Adam. Where are you? And he asks of Cain, where is your brother? And Cain is unrepentant. And like Adam, he is lost, but he is in a far, far worse place than his father ever was. Last week we heard how God extended mercy to the first couple. He pronounced judgment on them, and the curse fell, if you remember, the curse fell on the lands, and the curse fell on the serpent, but to the first couple, they were judged. There was no curse upon them. But here, here mercy is extended to Cain, but, and it's a big but, the curse of God now falls on humankind. Look at verse 10. The Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on earth. The curse is now on humankind. The blood of an innocent son is shed. And like his parents, Cain is banished from God's presence. But unlike his parents, Cain is now cursed by God. He cannot and will not make it in the world. He is now literally in a living hell on earth. The curse of God is on Cain. I wonder if you believe such a curse can fall on humanity. Shona Lang used to sing a song. It's a few years dated now. I'm glad I'm not a Kennedy. She was talking about the Kennedy clan. And if you track the Kennedys, what's gone on, the, the death of JFK, the president of the 1960s, was just the beginning. For Cain, this curse meant that he was banished from home. The ground that he would be working is fruitless. He can, he can do nothing with this earth any longer. But significantly, the text says he has a restless spirit. He has a restless spirit. This inability to settle was perhaps the clearest indicator of the curse of God. Literally, a restless wanderer, like every man and woman since the fall, desperately seeking home, desperately seeking our way back to God's, desperately seeking our way back to the garden to the place of innocence, wishing we didn't know what we know now. In your anger and your vengeance, you've destroyed that which is good and acceptable to God, destroyed even what you aspire to, even what you love, and restless in your spirit, wanting to come home, wanting to come home, but knowing not how do I find my way back. How do I find my way back? The seeds of human depravity begin to be revealed in this chapter. 
The second half of the chapter describes what happens as sin gets passed down from generation to generation and just gets worse and worse and worse. And so in verse 17, Cain made love to his wife and she became pregnant and gave birth to Enoch. And Cain was then building a city and he named it after his son Enoch. And to Enoch was born Erad, and Erad was the father of Mehujal, and Mehujal was the father of Methushal, and Methushal was the father of Lamech, and Lamech took a couple of wives because he could. He was no longer in right relationship with God, and he sought to find his desires met where he would find them met. And then culture begins to be described in those verses. From his loins come the first nomadic farmers, the first musicians, the tool makers, but Lamech had slipped further and darker than Cain. Look at verse 23 and 24. Then Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, listen to me, wives of Lamech, hear my words. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech 77 times. He's breathing vengeance. If somebody comes to me and slights me, if a young man injures me, then I will murder him. Not just seven times, but 77 times will I seek my vengeance. Lamech will have no forgiveness. He will kill even if he gets wounded. The escalation of sin and evil, this is not the way of righteousness. This is not the way of God's. On Tuesday night, a number of us gathered at Society for Gospel and Culture, and we heard Sam Mungai speak on Maori tanga and identity in the gospel. And he shared a story as a young man when he was in a youth group. It was a church youth group, and he was traveling into town from Wakawaiti, and there was a number of his youth group with him. And the youth pastor said, Does anybody know any jokes? We've got a bit of time to kill. And one guy piped up and said, yeah, I know a few Maori jokes. Sam was sitting there in his Maori culture and his Maori identity. And he, in his own testimony, he heard these Maori jokes belittling him all the way into town and all the way out. And in his own words, he said, and something just snapped on the way home. He didn't say what happened at that point, but something snapped. When he got home, he spoke to his dad, Roger, who was here on Tuesday night, a Maori, a gracious man, a follower of Christ. And Roger said to his son, who was no doubt breathing vengeance and working through this hurt and pain, he says, the way of Christ is to forgive. We don't repay evil with evil. Unlike Lamech. Chapter 4 concludes with hope as God replaces Abel with Seth. Verse 25, Adam made love to his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth, saying, God has granted me another child in place of Abel since Cain killed him. Seth also had a son, and he named him Enosh, and at that time people began to call on the name of the Lord. People began to call on the name of the Lord. Chapter 4 concludes with hope as God replaces Abel with Seth, and people begin to call on the name of the Lord. Psychologists, even those who don't know Christ, read Genesis 4, and they say, yeah, this makes sense of human depravity 
and pathology. Jordan Peterson, one of the more famous psychologists, has done a pretty good job of unpacking Genesis 4. It's worth a look if you want to have a look at it. But he misses perhaps the central points. He misses perhaps the central points of this chapter. You see, sin is crouching at your door. You can be seduced by the lust of it in ways that will lead you into dark depravity. But truth is revealed here, a truth far deeper, far more profound than mere psychology. You see, what's going on in Genesis 4 is not psychology. It is a spiritual ailment. Sin is lurking at your door, God warns us. The death of Abel, whose innocent blood was shed by a murderous Cain, speaks of the one who is to come. It speaks of the one who is to come, whose blood not only cries out from the cross, but actually makes a way for the curse to be removed, actually makes a way for the stain of shame and sin and guilt to be removed from our life. Sin is crouching at your door, but you carry within you the grace of God if you will but believe the gospel. I reference the message Peter preached in Acts 10. God has no favorites. Cain, but in your pact with the devil, you killed the innocent one. God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil, because God was with him. And we are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a cross. But God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. Sin is crouching at your door, but you carry within you the grace of God if you will but reach out and call on the name of the Lord. You see, the offering that Cain brought wasn't the problem. The offering that Cain brought wasn't why he was rejected. The problem was what was going on in his heart. The problem was the pride of his heart, failing to humble himself before the Lord's. The writer to Hebrews in chapter 12, verse 1, says the following. Hebrews 12 and verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. If we want to come before God with this stuff that we have to throw off, anything that's hindering us and the sin that entangles around us just by stepping out the door, what is it that's hindering you from seeing God today? What is it that's entangled around you that's stopping you from seeing God in all his glory today? God would say, it must not control you. You must control it. Sin is crouching at the door, but grace lives in your heart if you will do one thing, if you will call on the name of the Lord. You see, the writer of the Hebrews goes on to say, let us fix our eyes on Jesus the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. For the joy he set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God's. Sin is crouching at your door, but grace lives in your heart if you will do one thing and call on the name of the Lord. Genesis 4 concludes with the message of hope as God in his providence replaces the one who was slain. 
And so we read in verse 25, Adam made love to his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth, saying, God has granted me another child in place of Abel. Since Cain called him, Seth has had a son, and he named him Enosh. And at that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord's. Church, that's your invitation this morning. That's your invitation to call on the name of the Lord. Sin is crouching at your door. Sin is crouching at your door. But you carry the grace of God inside you if you will call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ this morning. That's the invitation that's given to us this morning. On Tuesday night, Sam shared another story about his dad. And early on in the day, in, when he was living out at Wakawaiti, one of his neighbours, one of his Pākehā neighbours, having drunk a few too many spates, rang him up one night and started abusing Roger for being a Māori. Started abusing him and said, and I quote, you should go back to your country where you came from. <laughs> he wasn't too up with his history, this particular neighbour. And Roger, being a follower of Christ, didn't respond with anger, didn't respond with hatred, didn't respond as Lemek responded. He responded with grace, and he put the phone down. And then the next day, or shortly after, when his neighbor had sobered up, he went round and chatted and extended grace, and they became friends, and they became reconciled. Because Roger knows what it means to follow Christ. He knows that you don't repay evil with evil, but you repay it with good. Sin is crouching at our door. And its desire is to have you. Literally, its desire is to seduce you, to control you, but you must not let it control. Sin is crouching at your door, but grace Grace is available. You carry grace within you the moment you call out to the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and say, I can't do it by myself. You never said I could, but with your help and with your enabling, I know I can do it. And in humility, you yield your life to Christ. That's the invitation for you this morning. That's the invitation for you this morning. Let's bow our heads and our hearts in prayer. Father, as we sit under this word, we realize that this is a sobering word. We see in this word a mirror of our broken, fallen world. But more than that, perhaps more deeply than that, we see a mirror into our heart. We see a mirror into our heart and we see the shadows within our hearts. That we thank you for the word of grace that you hold out to us this morning. The word of grace that blood has been shed, innocent blood has been shed at the cross of Calvary. And because of that blood shed, we can be free from sin. Our sins can be forgiven. We can be free from shame. We can be free from fear. And that restless spirit that keeps us wandering and searching can be replaced with your spirit, a spirit of grace, a spirit of peace. And that's what you hold out to us right now, that you would take away the restless spirit 
and that you would replace it with your spirit of peace, your spirit of love. And so, Father, I ask that you would do that even now. You would do that even now. You would grant us the gift of repentant faith as a church, as individuals. For those who have wandered away, Lord, that you would call us back. For those who are fearful and carrying shame, that you would wash that shame away. For those who have never yet known you, Lord, that you would grant us the gift of repentant faith even now. God, that you would minister your peace, that you would minister your shalom, that you would minister your salvation to your children now. We thank you for your word of grace. We thank you for your word of hope. And it's to you we give all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.